book of 1 John, and uh, we've been in it since um, really late September, and we're carrying on uh, in 1 John chapter 3. So let me pray for us as we look at this text. And God, now as we open your word, your life-giving word, we pray that it would come not just in word only, but in power by the Holy Spirit. May you come, and may you be present in your word, because what we need to live is you. And so we pray that you would, as you so graciously promised to do, would give us yourself. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our strength, our Redeemer. Amen. Well, there was a farmer and he had two sons. They took over the family business. One handled the crops, the other handled the livestock. And these sons, they were brought up religious. And so they went to church regularly. They even gave a portion of their work to the fruit of their labor to the Lord. One week the church was having a meal and so they offered to provide. Abel, he brought the meat. It was the best, the choice meat. It was marbled and succulent and very nice, juicy, like the um, pulled pork shoulder that I'm going to be smoking this afternoon. Juicy. Uh, but uh, Cain, he brought the scraps, uh, rotten fruit, wilted vegetables. And, well, the people, they really praised and applauded Abel's offering, but Cain's not so much. Of course, this got Cain very upset. Not only upset, also depressed even. And just to hear people heap praise upon Abel and his offering and to know that Abel's offering was acceptable, well, that just rubbed it in. And Cain, he couldn't take it anymore. So one day he lured his brother out into the field and he killed him. It's an imaginative retelling of the first family, the first sibling rivalry. You know, sometimes the hardest people to love are the people within your own family. And the Bible, it's actually quite honest about that. Jacob is forced to flee from home after he steals his brother's blessing and inheritance. Esau, in a fit of rage, uh, is at that point dangerous. And so Jacob, he runs away, and that leads to years, over two decades of estrangement. Leah was not the most beautiful of the two sisters, but she was the oldest. Nobody wanted her. They wanted her younger sister, Rachel. The Bible tells us that 
Leah had weak eyes. And by saying it, that she had weak eyes, it doesn't mean that she had bad eyesight because it says, uh, it doesn't say uh, Leah, she had weak eyes, but uh, Rachel could see for miles. It says Leah, she had weak eyes, but Rachel, she was very beautiful. To say she had weak eyes is to say that she wasn't easy on the eyes. And nobody wanted her. Not even her husband, who was tricked into marrying her by her father Laban. He thought he was marrying Rachel, the girl that everybody wanted, and eventually he did. Now, let me be clear. It's never a good idea to marry two women. It's a worse idea to marry two sisters, and it's an even worse idea to marry two sisters and love one and not the other. And you can imagine the family dynamics, the rivalry, the jealousy, the competition, which actually got played out in their sons. Joseph was Rachel's son, and because of that, he was his father Jacob's darling boy. He doted on him with gifts, which made Joseph the least favored brother. The least favorite brother. And Joseph, he didn't really make things easy on himself because he kept talking about these dreams that he was having where his brothers would come and bow down to him. Now, if you have dreams about your siblings bowing down to you, that may be the case, and we could talk about that, but best not to share it with your siblings. But Joseph, he did, and it was just one more technicolor dream dream coat or one more dream than... Well, his brothers, they couldn't take it anymore, so they took him out and they sold him into slavery. They take his coat back to his father and they say, your darling has died. He has been killed by a lion. And that's just Genesis. You know, sometimes the hardest people to love are those within our own families. And maybe that's why it's so hard to love people in the church. Have you ever thought about the words that the New Testament uses to describe the church? All the family analogies. Pastors are likened to fathers. Church members, congregants are called children and they address one another as brother and sister. And we can see all that in 1 John and especially in the passage that was read for us earlier, 1 John 3, verses 10 through 18, where John uses the word brother no less than eight times. Now, sometimes people in your family the hardest to love. And perhaps that's why people are leaving the church or have given up on church. It's no surprise or it's no secret that people are leaving the church, leaving in droves. I just saw another article this week on why millennials are leaving the church. 
I was talking to uh, an older pastor, and as I was talking, he was receiving texts from his daughter, and it was, it was a fairly serious conversation, and it had to do with some real questions that she had about Christianity and doubts. And he said, don't get me wrong, it's not that she has a problem committing to Jesus, she's okay with Jesus, she's just not sure about Christians and the church. I'm sure you've heard that before. Jesus, okay, but church, Christians? For one reason or another, uh, many of my closest friends have been pastor's children. I always ask them how that was, and one of them summarized it like this, which I I think really um, encapsulates it. He just looked at me and he goes, Man, in the church, decent people turn nasty. Sometimes the people that are hardest to love are those within your own family. Your own church family. And yet, this is the mandate. Look in verse 11 of 1 John chapter 3. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. John is here, of course, reflecting on the commandment that Jesus gave to his disciples. In the upper room discourse that the Gospel of John records, John records no less than three times Jesus saying something to the effect of a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another. Now, Loving one another wouldn't be such a difficult command if one another means your best friends from college. Loving one another wouldn't be such a difficult command if it means your affinity group, like the buddies you surf with, or your knitting club, or uh, your um, cycling group. But that's not not who Jesus or John is talking about, and, and they make it evidently clear The context, verse 10, is talking about loving a brother, a word that John uses, again, no less than eight times in this passage. And Jesus goes on to say, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, that is hard. Let's be honest, that is hard. What would it look like? Is it even possible? What would it look like to love? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't look like. John tells us what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like Cain. Look at verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. So in case you came in here this morning with any kind of confusion and you're wondering, should I murder this person or not? Listen, is it loving to murder this person? It is not. It is not loving to murder anyone, okay? Especially a brother. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Now, we read this, of course, and we think uh, most of us, most of us, think I have not taken anyone's physical life. 
And because I'm not taking anyone's physical life, we breathe a sigh of relief. <sighs> We're off the hook, right? But before you breathe that sigh of relief, let's reflect a little bit on verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life by abiding in him. John says it's not just the taking of physical life that constitutes murder, even hate constitutes murder. Remember Jesus and his most, John is just, just, just doing the same thing that Jesus was doing in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, liable to the hell of fire. Whoever says, you fool. I remember reading that the first time as a, as a kid and, and being uh, taught on it. And I just kept thinking, what am I going to call my brother? <laughs> I better stick to butthead or something like that. I can't do you fool anymore. But Jesus, he's saying that there's more to the sixth command than meets the eye. That to demean someone is to actually steal their life, and that is of a piece with murder. Because the sixth command is it's about promoting life and not doing anyone, anything that would be on the path to hindering or harming or obstructing someone's flourishing. And so Jesus says, when you insult someone, when you call them a fool, when you say, and a fool is a moral term in the Bible, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. When you say to someone, you are incapable of knowing and loving God, you are demeaning their humanity. And our insults, they do that. I was once boarding a plane, and I heard this mother yelling at her child, who must have been under three, under four, you idiot, you idiot. You idiot. It was, the hardest, it was harder than watching someone be beaten. Because they were sucking the life right out of that child. They were killing them. Well, John tells us that to, to hate in verse 15 is to commit murder. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And hate, it's not the same as being angry. Of course, Jesus does say whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. But Jesus, we have to take this in the context of what Jesus says overall and does. And when Jesus says to be angry is to be liable to the judgment, he's not talking about every kind of anger. Jesus was angry. He was angry when he walked into the temple and they were obstructing Gentile worship. And the book of Ephesians, Paul says, be angry and do not sin. So there is a righteous type of anger. Jesus is talking about another type of anger. What type of anger is he talking about? Jesus is talking about an anger that comes from a place of wishing that someone didn't exist. And wanting to just be done with them. 
And if that's the case, then, you know, indifference, it can be a form of hate. Indifference can be a form of hate as well, because if you are indifferent to whether or not someone exists, if you said, you know, I just, I would rather not have them in my world, in my life. Well, it's hard to promote someone's flourishing if you're indifferent to whether they live or die. Whether you're in your world or not. See, the Sixth Commandment is a call to promote life. And you cannot promote life when you're indifferent towards the lives of others. You see, what Cain did was he stole his brother's life. And you can do that without just taking someone's physical life. Why? Why did Cain murder his brother? Verse 12 tells us because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. His own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now to understand what John is saying here, I think that we have to actually step back and remember the story because what he's saying is is more profound than I think it appears on the surface on the surface. Remember what happened in the story. Cain and Abel, they offer their offerings. And then it says that the Lord looked with favor upon Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. That Cain's offering, I mean that Abel's offering was accepted and acceptable to God. But Cain's was not. And then the Bible says this. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. See, what's set in from this experience of feeling rejected by God was anger, low-grade anger, and depression. The Bible calls it, his face was downcast. We call it depression. And it's not the depression, so much depression that comes from cloudy days, too many cloudy days, or the depression that comes from a bad diet or the depression that comes from chemical imbalances or your thyroid being off. It's a depression that comes from a broken relationship with God, spiritual depression, something that we consider far too little. Look at the question that the Lord asked Cain. He comes to him in Genesis 4, 6 and says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? See, Cain was upset because his relationship with God was off. But you see, Abel is where he directed the blame because he couldn't deal with his relationship with God. And so he had to deflect. And all he knew was that Abel and his righteousness and his relationship with God, which was not broken, it was a continual reminder of his inadequacy. And so he said, I've got to do something about that, and he takes him out into the field, and he kills him. He was resentful, and he was jealous. And maybe some of us, that we don't want to admit it, can relate. When we become 
angry. Oftentimes it's low grade and under the surface when we've come downcast and we resent other Christians. Other people in the church, we resent their flourishing, we resent their gifts, we resent their power and position, we resent how their lives seem to be being blessed and ours are not. And we take it out on them, but we're not really mad at them. We're mad at God. We're mad at our situation. We're mad at that. But we direct it at other Christians because the relationship with God, well, that's just too intense to deal with. But we need to step back and ask, why are we so mad? Why is you so downcast? Why are you angry and downcast, Cain? It's not Abel. It's because your relationship with me is broken, God is saying. And so when we, when we resent other Christians, when we're jealous of other Christians, and we're jealous and, and that leads to a marginalization of other Christians or other people in the church, when it pushes others out, they're not going to be in positions of power or leadership or influence. When it obstructs their flourishing and the use of their gifts, well, that is not love. Do not be like Cain. He's the negative example, and we learn what love is by doing the opposite of what he did. Do not be like Cain. But we don't just have a negative example. We also have a positive example. And the positive example is not Abel. It is a greater Abel. And it's one whose blood speaks more powerfully than Abel. See, what does it look like to love? Well, John gives us the positive example in verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That he laid down his life for us. John is clearly talking about Jesus. Jesus is the model for love. Just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. John says, or Jesus says, And what did Jesus' love look like? What did it look like? Jesus loved tangibly. A lot of people, uh, love is a popular thing, and most people say, I love, and I want to love, and we just need more love. And especially um, in uh, the political climate of today with so much um, division and rancor, uh, oftentimes you will see statements like, we just need love. Uh, But of course the question comes, What does love entail? What does it mean that you love these other people? What does it mean to love another? Is it a sentiment of goodwill? Which is what a lot of people, how a lot of people define love today. But notice that Jesus' love for us is not a sentiment of goodwill. By this we know love. He laid down his life for us. He tangibly provided for us. It's tangible. And we've all had the experience of someone saying, I love you, I'm sorry, and you're like, well, I don't feel loved right now because of what you're doing to me. Right? Love has to be worked out tangibly. It's more than words. And Jesus, he just not only loved us tangibly, he also loved sacrificially. 
By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for one another. It is tangible, it is sacrificial. And what, is, what would that even look like? Well, John spells it out, verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, it closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love, not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. What would it look like? Well, it looks like the deacon's fund. If you know this or not, whether you know this or not, we have a fund in our church. It's called the deacon's fund. That fund is a designated fund. It's our only designated fund. And it is there for you to write deacon's fund in the memo line of your, church, uh, of your check. Or online, you can check that option. And when you do that, that fund goes specifically to those who are experiencing needs, hardship. It goes to help people's groceries when, because of a hardship or unemployment, they don't have enough to eat. It goes to help people's cars so that they can get to their employment when they have a car that that breaks down and they don't have the resources to take care of it. It goes to, to help someone's medical needs when their family cuts them off and they need support. That's what the deacon's funds do. That's what, and a lot of you give to it. That's what John is talking about. You are loving as you are called to love. You are loving sacrificially. You are loving tangibly. You are loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. I was talking to someone recently who has been supported by the Deacon's Fund. And I was talking to this person and they said to me, I have never experienced love from a church like this. I have never experienced love from a church like this in all my years. And it was because their needs were being met tangibly and physically and sacrificially. But it doesn't just look like the deacon's fund. It could look like a variety of things. It could be offering hospitality to those who are lonely or marginalized. It, if you're a family, it could be inviting a single person in, young or old, to your family life because they need community and they need family. If you are single, it could mean inviting in those who are on the outside or new to the events and things that you do in your community. It could mean visiting those who are elderly. There are all kinds of ways in which we can love. Love tangibly. It could mean if you are good with your hands, it could mean going and doing repairs on someone's home who can't do it. It could mean picking up groceries for those who are sick. It could mean signing up for a meal. And um, by the way, that is for men as well as women, right? Uh, Because guess what? Newsflash Chefs are both genders. So sign up. Sign up. There are all kinds of ways in which you can love tangibly and sacrificially in which you are. And when you do so, you are loving as Jesus loved. You are fulfilling the new command. But some of you are saying, you're listening to me and you're saying, whoa, 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 whoa. 
But you're talking about doing this for Christians in the church. And you don't know what those people have done to me. You don't know how much I've been hurt by them. And you're right, I don't. I do not know, but I do not doubt. I do not doubt that you've been hurt. I do not doubt that at all. But remember what John says in verse 16. By this we know love. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. So we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And when Jesus laid down his life for us, did he lay it down for people who had never hurt him? Did he lay his life down for a people who have never let him down, who have never wronged him? You see, to become a Christian is to come to that place where you realize that you live only by the grace of God, that your life is only by the forgiveness of God. And so to love another is to say, you know what, we're in the same place. We both only exist based on the grace and forgiveness of God in Christ, and we have to extend grace and forgiveness to one another And so here's what this means. To love like Jesus, you actually have to become discouraged by the church. To love like Jesus, you have to actually become disappointed by the church. To love like Jesus, you actually have to be let down by the church. And then you love with clear eyes and a full heart. I'm not going to finish that. Because that's how he loves. And that's how he loved you. And so some of us, we, we haven't gotten involved in a church long enough or deep enough to really love it, as Jesus says. Because if you haven't been involved long enough or deep enough to get hurt by the church, then you can't love the church like Jesus loves, who loves those who crucified him. And he laid down his life for them. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now that's a tall order, Kyle. That's a tall order, John. I'm just saying what he's saying. I don't come up with this stuff. Trust me. So how do we do it? By this we know love. Everything that John is saying is predicated upon this fact that we know the love of God in Jesus Christ, that we've experienced the love of God in Jesus Christ, and it is knowing that love that we are able to love. I met a, uh, I was traveling this summer and staying with a family, and I met this girl who, um, well, when she was, when she was in elementary school, her father went out to run an errand and never came back. Her mother was pretty absent her whole growing up years and felt overwhelmed and therefore didn't spend any time with her daughter or raise her. She was always with different families. She was not loved well, you can say that. And she did not know how to love well in high school. 
She was always getting in trouble, always hurting others in various ways. But then some Christians in young life took her under their wing and they started to love her. And she started learning to receive love and in that she started learning to give love. And then she moved to Dallas where she went to seminary. And while she was in seminary, she had a professor that basically adopted her as a daughter and loved her. And she also had a family that brought her in and made her one of their own. And this gal is now on staff at a church loving others and inviting them in because she has been loved well. You can't love others unless you've been loved well. And the whole premise that John is writing under is that we have been loved well. By this we know love, that we know love, that we have been loved well, we have been loved by God. And his love for us is transformative. It's powerful. It gives us the ability to love what John says in verse 10, he, he's talking about uh, who are the children of God and who are the t- children of the devil. And he says, by this it is evident who, the cho- who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now John is talking about what is evident. He's not talking about what causes. He's not saying that to practice righteousness or to love one another causes you to be a child of God. He's saying that loving one another and practicing righteousness, these are the results of being loved by God. By this, it is evident who are. See, loving others doesn't make you a child of God, but it is the result of it. And he's saying this is how you know who the children of God are. They practice righteousness, and they love one another. Why? Because God's love, it's not simply powerful. It transfers us from death to life. It's also abundant, super abundant. And it cannot be contained in a person. And when the love of God is poured out into our hearts, guess what? It spills out into the lives of others. Necessarily, inevitably, it must. Verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? What he's saying is this, if God's love abides in you, God's love is so abundant, it will spill out. We've had a lot of rain recently. We've not seen water in a long time. And when you have a lot of rain, you start to see things fill up very quickly, like streets and creeks and all kinds of things around us. And, and some of those things start spilling out. They start spilling over. God's love is always like that. It's always super abundant. There's always... An overflow. And it will spill out when we have received it. It will spill out into the lives of others. And so while the first question maybe that you need to ask this morning is, do I love my brothers? That is not the last question you need to ask. That is not where you need to stay. The last question that you need to ask is this. Have I received the love of God? Do I know the love of God? Have I experienced the love of God in Jesus Christ? Am I willing to let him love me? 
tangibly, sacrificially. Because he will. Because he does. He will love you tangibly. This is my body given for you. He will love you sacrificially. This is my blood shed for you. And so what you need this morning, more than anything else, is to let God love you. Like John had to learn to let God love him. When he took off his outer garments and he bent down in an upper room and he washed his feet. Have you received the love of God is what John is, is assuming, is it true of you? By this we know. We don't know it enough. But God, he wants us to know, us, know it enough. He wants us to know it full. He wants us to know that we are loved and he wants to love us tangibly and sacrificially. So let him love you this morning. Come to the table. And Lord, we do pray that we would know your tangible, sacrificial love, your dying love for us, and that that love would overwhelm us and transform us, and that it would indeed spill out into the lives of others. We thank you for the ways in which this is already true in our community. And we look to you for the ways in which we need this to be more true in our lives, and in our community. And so, Lord, open our hearts and pour out your love in our hearts by your Spirit, even this morning, even through bread and wine. Amen.